Recently, I was listening to a church elder sharing what he'd learned from being part of a healthy, growing church over many years in the United States. Our approach, he said, is quite simple, and that was to put absolute confidence in God's word. We decided many years ago, and we're very clear about that, to read it, to believe it, to proclaim it, to pray in response to it, to be unashamed in the world with it. And he said, we decided we would do our very best to be a New Testament church. That is to sincerely, bravely follow the New Testament's instructions as best we could and to let the chips fall where they fall. The easy bits, the hard bits, the inconvenient bits, the offensive bits. We were committed to all of it and God seemed over the years to really use that. I'd love that to be our story as well as a church. And I see great potential. Uh, Recently, our architects conducted a master plan survey. Thanks to many of you who filled it out. They said it was really surprising, the proportion of people who filled it out. And uh, one answer in particular was really encouraging for those of us who preach and who teach, uh, who write Bible studies and who lead home groups week after week. The question was, what is the most important aspect of DPC for you? Um, 23 respondents answered Bible teaching for this question. I'll read some of the answers, Bible teaching being the big one. Uh, God's word, teaching and community, biblical teaching, community, good Bible and fellowship, good, uh, God's people, Bible read, community of believers, community of God, true to the Bible, Bible-based, great teaching, faithful Bible, Bible study, gospel teaching, true to the Bible. You get the, 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 the gist. How good it was to read that. The Spirit has given us, as a church, a love for Bible teaching, for the Bible itself, and it's, it's no wonder. God communicates through the Bible to us of his love for us, his kindness, his mercy, promise, promises, salvation, protection, transformation. It speaks of us of the eternal blessing awaiting us. It points us to precious truths of the glorious risen Christ and his eternal kingdom. The Bible is a great wealth of knowledge for us. The treasure that we that can't be compared with anything of this world it speaks clearly about. So the question for us today is not so much are we hearing of Christ and his kingdom, but how are we responding to this Bible that we love? We have the Bible's teaching, so what? How are we responding to the truths we love? I chose this short text today after some long texts in Romans. You might remember Romans 11, big text, big topics. This one's very simple. And it also, as we will begin next week, looking at Romans 12, asks the so what question. And so it leads into this section we're going on into Romans. So Matthew 13, 44 to 46 here. Two tiny parables in three short verses, familiar to many of us, very simple to understand, inspiring and yet hard-hitting all at once. Listen to King Jesus stir up people like us who love the Bible, people he wanted to wake up in responsiveness to the wonderful, breathtaking reality of his eternal kingdom. So if you're following in your outlines there, firstly the parables. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, 
And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. The first thing to notice is that what seems distant, future and forever, the kingdom of heaven is actually discoverable, accessible in this life. The kingdom of heaven is found by people in this age. Yes, what happens now in our very earthy actions has implications for eternity. Why is that? And to understand the parable, I think we also need to know what is the kingdom of heaven that it's describing. The kingdom is the realm, the sphere of the king's rule. The risen son of God is also the king of the coming age, the great king for humanity 2.0. So yes, the kingdom of heaven has a very exciting future element to it because we will live eternally with the Lord Jesus in a sinless, restored and beautiful creation. But because Jesus is king now, the king and citizens are already gathering. It's a current reality. The churches around the world like this one are already getting to know each other as friendly turns into friends, turns into eternal family. We, the church, are now called citizens of heaven. We love heaven's king and invite others to submit now to his rule before the the heaven or the hell separation that comes with his return. The stakes of the kingdom of heaven, therefore, couldn't be greater. This life is so significant because this life is the time to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the next life is so significant because it lasts forever. I don't know if you like bus trips. I find the short ones okay. I had six years of them. It took me an hour and 40 minutes to get to school every day, so I I got over the bus. Um, And long bus trips as well. You you go through the turns and the bends, and it's pretty easy for people to feel sick, and uh, you might be one of those people. This short life is a bit like a bus trip. Um, This life is not the destination, but the bus trip is vitally important for the destination. It is while we're on the bus that we hear about the powerful king at our destination. It's on the bus that we share with other passengers about this kingdom so that they join us in the kingdom of heaven. All around us in Sydney, all around the world, are people completely unaware of the kingdom of heaven and its supreme importance sitting on the bus. And like the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 Some people seem to almost stumble into the kingdom accidentally by stumbling into contact with Jesus and one of his messengers like you and me. That's the kind of person in view, I think, in the first parable. Let's take a look. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. It's possible this man was looking for the treasure, but that's not mentioned Uh, The treasure, however, was somehow unearthed. The land doesn't belong to the man, and according to law in the first century, in this part of the world, um, the landowner uh, receives the wealth of anyone who finds it on, on the land. And so the first priority is to cover it over and buy the land to be the legitimate owner. Now, if you've seen Forrest Gump, the movie, he stumbles onto some cheap apple shares thinking... He's bought into some kind of fruit company. He stumbled upon a fortune, meaning in his own words, he don't need to worry about money no more. 
The person who found this treasure knows something worth much more than the land. I imagine to the one who owned the land, the happy man approaching him would have been a bit peculiar, something fishy going on perhaps, probably toning down his excitement. And for some reason, willing to pay even more than the land seems worth to him. But the man who found the treasure knows it's an absolute bargain. Yes, he sold everything to buy the field, but it feels like no sacrifice at all to him. Christians who see the kingdom of heaven's value should look peculiar to the world. We should raise eyebrows too from those around us. Whether we're accountants making financial decisions. But as a Christian we make decisions that are equally rational but bizarre. Whether we're students or retired people, corporate people, arts or science people, we're to be captured by this vision of Jesus that makes our decisions and our impulses different from those around us. If there was such thing as a wise betting man, that man would put all his bets on Jesus. The woman in the health industry may seem a tad tad mad at times among her peers because she sees Jesus as the absolute formula, the ultimate routine, the elixir of her life. We Christians can be quick to count the costs of being a Christian, too quick and too slow to see why the costs are nothing in comparison to the worth of Jesus. When someone told you about Jesus, might have been your parents, your grandparents, your kids' church leaders, your friend at university, your workmate, whoever it was, when you heard about Jesus, you were gifted with knowledge that is more valuable than you can possibly imagine. Money runs out. Things you buy get old or just ho-hum. Every dollar you spend on yourself ends with yourself. But with the king of the universe before your eyes, with the doorway to heaven opened before you, someone very ordinary brought to you an extraordinary treasure, one that perhaps you didn't value much at all at the time and even now have an underestimated view of its worth. Forgiveness, peace with God and with self, an eternal spring of life. If you are here today but haven't yet come to Jesus, the treasure, I'd urge you to respond to him. See what he's worth. See what all the fuss is about. Ask questions. Hassle someone here to tell you more. For verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. What about the second parable? A parable, by the way, just means comparison. Um, So it's a a story about something we can relate to. It's pointing to a much greater spiritual reality. Again, verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Now, what's different about this parable? Why does Jesus give two parables here? One difference is that while the man in the first parable perhaps accidentally found the treasure, in the second parable, the merchant, the trader, was searching for fine pearls before finding this ultimate one. Some people stumble upon Jesus. Others come to Jesus after many long episodes of dead ends, a long search for meaning, for hope, for truth, for a reason for life and a reason to live. 
The man here seems to pay the fair price for the pearl, unlike the first uh, parable. But he's content because he knows the pearl's worth. His joy isn't mentioned like the first parable, but we could assume it's there by his actions because it's another sell-everything response. In Mongolia, where we were living, many people were politely and superstitiously very responsive when they heard about Jesus. They heard the gospel. They'd said they agreed and were willing to trust Jesus. They'd receive a Bible and put it on their sacred shelf next to their Buddhist religious items. They would fit Jesus on the shelf among the other things, but not exclusively. And they assumed it was okay for Jesus and the Bible to share space. But when Mongolians comprehended the true value of Jesus and his kingdom, they gladly removed all else from the shelf. Brothers and sisters, this is an important point. Jesus' call to follow him in the first century was a very literal one. You can imagine when Jesus looked you in the eye and said, follow me, you are forced to decide then and there if Jesus has all of you or not. Will you get up, leave your business, your relatives, your friends? If he asks you to sell all of your possessions and give to the poor and then follow him, you're faced with the decision, will you? Will you go with him? That's what disciples do. That's who they are. Disciples, by definition, follow Jesus by not clinging to anything less. I think many or all of us keep forgetting that the call of Jesus to follow him is still a very literal one. Sure, we can't see him today. He isn't directly calling us perhaps to leave one place and go to another or sell all that we have. But his call to follow him today is not merely hypothetical. Many of us might feel safe to say, hypothetically, if Jesus called me to sacrifice my time, my career, my life priorities, I would. If Jesus called me to have a genuine go at making disciples, I would. If Jesus called me to be faithful in prayer this week, of course I would. And if we're not awake to the danger of if-discipleship, we give our flesh too much room And if our fellow Christians are too polite or similarly infected, we might one day realise we're not really responding like disciples much at all. One minister said of someone in their congregation, "Um, I'm glad to hear they've come to your church. They do church and Christianity on their own terms, I think. They'll do as they please. It wasn't a warm commendation. The question is not, has Jesus given you clear instructions? The question is, are you taking them seriously? The parable brings this distressing possibility to our attention. Are we living as children, women and men who have the treasure of heaven, or are our actions betraying us? Can you see the problem? This is not to earn our way into the kingdom. Salvation is a gift. Paul has just been explaining that to us many weeks. No, this is about fruitfully responding to the gift. The Christ who would go on in Matthew's gospel to die for us and give us his life. This is about having the marks of kingdom people during our lifetime of opportunity. 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Brothers and sisters, I ask, are you all in? Are you clearly and wholly consecrated? Does these words mean a lot to you? Consecrated, devoted, faithful. Or in the language of Romans 12, coming to us next week, are are you a living sacrifice being offered to God? Or are you playing around with the unsatisfying fringes of genuine Christianity? Now, there's a lot of grey in this. I find this, I take it you do as well. Because the Bible gives us lots of freedom. On the money topic raised by the parable, that the parable is raising itself, someone selling and, and, and giving, I was provoked as a young adult when I read the book Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And it's really quite angry towards the Western church and in our lack of generosity towards a world in need. As a parent, I wrestled a lot with our enrolments of kids into private schools where I knew thousands of dollars would be poured into their education. We have more and better cars than we need as a family. We take holidays that could be much cheaper And we live like kings compared to most people throughout history or even throughout the world today. The Bible gives freedom to enjoy really nice things. So Jesus' call needs to be heard and heard and heard again. If I'm to sincerely say Jesus is my Lord and that my home is in heaven. I genuinely want not only to be ready to give it all up, but to actually do so as kingdom needs arise. I've got nothing against expensive holidays. I've been on some myself. A few years ago, our family went to beautiful Italy and France. It was amazing. Um, Our own church's financial needs are generously met. Uh, The last couple of weeks, um, a couple of people have given close to $30,000, amazing, to just remove the deficit that we'd had. And I'll, I'll share more of that in coming weeks, an update. But I do seem to hear of many churches around Australia under financial strain while also hearing of waves of Christians on international adventures at the same time, 10,000 here, 20, 30,000 there. What some churches, uh, churchgoers might never dream of giving to kingdom work of their church or compassion or the Bible society, we so effortlessly spend on ourselves. Again, if you're about to go on a great holiday, it's not a guilt trip, Uh, enjoy the holiday. The world's a wonderful place to be enjoyed. But I am saying Western churches are viewed by growing, developing world churches as being spiritually sleepy, as spiritually sleepy as we are wealthy and indulgent. And this is a statement not so much of envy but of pity. It really is more blessed to give than to receive, but we're in danger of missing out through choices that keep more to ourselves. Could it be we are awaiting specific orders to come alive to the kingdom rather than those getting on with obeying our king with joyful abandon that we see in the parables, finding ourselves languishing in self-absorption, self-care, remaining within our homes, our existing relationships and old friendship circles, our entertainment patterns, our safe places? 
And it all just sounds so foreign to Christ and the New Testament church, don't you think? We may say we're ready to sell and sacrifice all for the kingdom, but we may be just as sure glad that that call hasn't made itself obvious and explicit enough. This week, ask yourself, to what degree is your discipleship, our discipleship, on standby? Brothers and sisters of Jesus, disciples, our call has come. The time is now for our very best discipleship and kingdom endeavours. So what are we to do in our time and place with these parables? Let me share a few things that are not from the Lord, as Paul says it, so much seeking to share some things that have been on my mind and heart recently in our church's life. And they follow the questions in your outline. What would it look like for us to truly treasure the kingdom? And similarly, what would it look like for us to live with Christian joyful abandon? Before I dive into that, fundamentally, we must realise we can't manufacture the joyful abandon from men in the parables now enjoying their treasure and their pearls. They saw something that gripped them. There's something passive in it. And so too it has to start with appreciation for Jesus, does it not? A religious obligation is powerless to motivate. But by the spirit of Jesus, we see Jesus is Lord, strong and kind, the King of heaven, our greatest friend. The treasure himself is to be credited and called upon for our treasuring of him. And so ask, plead the Lord himself that he would give you clearer vision of himself. This is his gift to give. And use the means he gives of word and prayer and fellowship to see him. Our kids this morning, if your parents are Christians, you too need to decide to own Jesus for yourself as you get older. See yourself already as disciples, not waiting to be adult disciples. See yourselves already as those God can make disciples. He can make disciples through you. We heard of Trinity involved in a ministry sharing the gospel with lots of kids. Be a disciple of Jesus now. When I was in primary school and in high school, I knew a girl called Leanne. Leanne was braver than I was. Her friends knew she was a Christian because she told them she was a Christian. She invited some of her friends to youth group and to church, and some of her friends became Christians through her. So to our youngest people, I'd encourage you, be brave. Ask God to make you a disciple and a disciple who makes disciples. To the adults in our church, I'd encourage a few next things. Um, As pastoral staff, we feel we can create forums, opportunities, material, home group material over here. But will DPC have an appetite for them? What will the appetite be like? Someone asked last week if I could run a seminar on this or that topic. My response was, well, do you think people would come? I reminded him of the mission seminar that we had last month, that we had four or five people from the morning congregations come back to here. And for whatever reason, some of them good, our our prayer meeting yesterday had one person who wasn't on paid staff to be there. Despite weeks of advertising and Janet's excellent preparation of food and material. 
I wasn't good at going to prayer meetings in my previous church. This is not meant to induce guilt so much as a challenge. Um, There may be good reasons many of us don't get to these things. But we'd love to meet more appetite, more demand with more supply. John Calvin preached every day to congregations that gathered daily to hear the word preached. Spiritual demand is a wonderful thing to try to meet. Spurgeon preached a different sermon morning and night because he knew people would want to come back twice on Sundays. Uh, They say in today's church, people come twice a month, not twice a Sunday. I think our church is much stronger than that. Uh, We have newcomers awaiting new friends to be invited for their first meal in our church. We have K Central turning away dozens, perhaps hundreds of kids who would otherwise have heard the the gospel a couple of weeks ago if they just had more boots on the ground. We have prayers not prayed, conversations not had, opportunities not taken all over the place. Someone said to me yesterday, I'd love to be here another 20 years if I live that long so I can see the effect of the buildings and the ministry that takes place in the next 20 years. What will responsiveness to God's word look like? What might God do over the next 50, 100, 500 years as a result of our decision to take the Bible seriously in these important years together? What might God do as we, with his help, work hard to be a church directed by the New Testament? Allow me to read the pastoral note to conclude. Are you for real? And I'll borrow the words of J.C. Ryle to say, this isn't just my message, this is the message of the church through the centuries. Are you for real? Working out how to truly live for Jesus is the exciting and challenging task of every Christian. For DPC, working out how to have a red-hot go at being a New Testament church is equally exciting and challenging. How would our church family begin to change if we boldly decided to take the Bible absolutely seriously? That's what I'd love to find out. And the two short parables today inspire us to joyfully turn up the dial on our spiritual life. J.C. Ryle writes, We see in these two parables the real clue to the conduct of many unconverted people. They are what they are in religion because they are not fully persuaded that it is worthwhile to be different. They flinch from decision. They shrink from taking up the cross. They halt between two opinions. They will not commit themselves. They will not come forward boldly on the Lord's side. And why? Because they are not convinced that it will answer. They have no, not faith. They are not sure that the treasure is before them. They are not satisfied the pearl is worth so great a price. They cannot yet make up their minds to sell all that they may win Christ. And so too often they perish everlastingly. When a man will venture nothing for Christ's sake, we must draw the sorrowful conclusion that he has not got the grace of God. This is speaking about unbelievers, friends, but it shouldn't describe the church. And so let's resolve to be genuine disciples, a genuine church of Christ, and watch what God does.